Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined by Kevin, the mature millennial Hume. How's it going today, Kevin? Oh, uh, you're making me feel a little old there, sir. I'm doing okay. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. My cat's sick. Oh, no. He's got the sneezes. Oh, poor little guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Well, I'll get to what I was driving at with your nickname in just a minute, but I have a few items we need to discuss first. Alrighty. Earlier this week, the Philadelphia Weekly, the city of brotherly loves alternative weekly newspaper, uh, sort of like uh, us, we're an alternative weekly at SF Mm -hmm. Weekly, Mm -hmm. caused a bit of a stir when its publisher, Dan McDonough, I think I'm saying that right, it's like the one Irish name that... I can't. Well, that and Cersei. I learned how to say Cersei a while ago. Yeah. Although I, th- I thought it was Sersha, but yeah. Sersha. Oh, Sersha. Mm, my yeah. mistake. Floated the, well, so this guy, Dan, he floated the idea that the paper would be willing to take a conservative bent if that's what Philadelphians wanted. Um, and here's a bit of the statement Dan published in a column and an accompanying Kickstarter page. Quote, we elected a DA who is anti-cop and doesn't want to prosecute crimes. We elected a mayor who protects homeless encampments instead of local residents. The alternative voices we spoke to aren't the alternative. They're in power. So we want to go back to our roots and speak for those who have an alternative voice. Being alt in 2020 is different than it was years ago. Conservatives are the ones who no longer have a voice, especially here in Philly. End quote. Ew. Ew. So the Kickstarter, it was kind of a way to gauge whether there was legitimate interest in this proposition. And perhaps Frank Reynolds might have been happy to pony up. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I could see that happening. (laughs) But McDonough basically got dragged on Twitter and people said things along the lines of giving the Koch brothers their voice back Uh, and uh, and called out what, you know, could have could be construed as kind of like a fair weather fan stance of like, Oh yeah, we'll we'll do this. We'll be conservative if you want, but like if not, never mind. Now, I guess in McDonough's defense, the guy is apparently not a Trumper. This is at least according to the editor of Philadelphia Weekly, uh, Kareth Gabriel, who is a sort of self-described uh, progressive. Kareth kind of went to bat for Dan, saying that you know Dan has been working hard uh, to make the paper a reality uh, with shrinking budgets. And that the idea wasn't to go full like QAnon uh, and and wave the flag for Trump was, but was just to kind of like bring on, um, you know, more varied voices and opinions um, with a, you know, more conservative viewpoint. And I guess I can see what he's trying to say. Like I do worry as an editor um, about echo chambers and information bubbles and like, am I like, just, am I being an MSNBC here? Mm -hmm. Um, I do worry about what happens when, you know, like, the true definition of political correctness is is only saying things that are deemed politically correct by the the party that you you favor. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about when those things take a hold of people. I hate purity tests and the idea that I have to support something just because it's part of some ideological framework. But that said, I am siding with the folks who blasted to Dan. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, like I don't know a ton about Philly. I've never been, but uh, I mean, being a fan of it's always sunny and, uh, wanting to go and see every baseball park in America. Like I definitely want to go and make some, you know, visits around one of the most historical cities in the country. Um, But I've always heard, uh, I guess, anecdotally uh, online that 
Philly fans basically tell it like it is. Like I saw a clip over the weekend, uh, you know, football's back and the Eagles, uh, mm-hmm. their announcer, the the, <laughs> their announcer was treating the game just like if the fans were there and was actually playing booze over the game when the Eagles like went three and out. And I've always heard just that like Philly fans will tell you like it is. And I feel like that's the kind of city that, you know, East coast kind of city that Philly is like, they're the type of people that will tell that shoot straight. It also got me thinking, you know, like the argument that like the conservative voices are the, the underrepresented. I mean, I think we're in a, we're in a pretty conservative country outside when you get outside of major population areas, you know, major cities and I think people by nature often kind of end up becoming more conservative as they get older. And so like the left has to constantly push and make an argument at every turn just to make incremental progress, you know? Yeah. You know, like I've lived in a few of those smaller areas uh, in Oregon, uh, in Northern California. Uh, I even lived in Illinois for a brief period of time outside, you know, way outside Chicago. And you know, it's definitely different out there. And um, I'd be, I guess I would be in favor of having something that could prop up and be kind of like, you know, a middle of the road voice for conservatives that doesn't actually go apeshit crazy every time yeah. something happens and is actually trying to put alternative voices out there instead of promoting things like alternative facts. Yeah. yeah. Alternative facts and the alt-right in as much as it became basically a a white supremacist movement. Those are the kinds of alternatives that we don't need. When I was in college, I I did yard work for a retired math teacher in Newark. Um, Mm -hmm. Pete Hokum, he was a great guy, an outstanding guy. He died a few years ago, but he lives on in my memory. And there's one thing that he said to me that will always stick with me. I had uh, been at a friend's house, um, a friend that I'd recently met uh, in college, uh, and the father of this guy said to me, if you're young and conservative, you have no heart. If you're old and liberal, you have no brain. <laughs> and this is, this is apparently a well-worn political maxim, mm-hmm. um, but I hadn't heard it before, and I bounced it off good old Pete to see what he thought, and you know what he said to me? What's that? Fuck him. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, so what I'm building to with that anecdote is this, like the gravitational pull toward conservatism is strong. It, it builds and it, it builds up in a lot of us. Um, and that someone would, you know, make a point to remain progressive later in life. Like that's hard to do. That's what is so at, that's what I found. That's one of the things I found so admirable about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, remaining committed to progressive principles, even as you get older and every part of your body hurts and it would just be so much easier to say kids these days. Um, but and stick to your progressive guns, rest in peace, RBG. Oh, yes. Speaking of kids these days, are you on TikTok, Kevin? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, a couple of my friends and my, my girlfriend have started delving into it. Not oh. really. Uh, I, I, one of my, yeah, I don't really watch the stuff my friend shares, although it seems kind of entertaining, but my girlfriend has been getting really into like animal videos and I'm on board with that. Ah, okay. Okay. (laughs) 
Well, obviously, TikTok, the platform of uh, Gen Z, I think sometimes called Zoomers. I don't know. Maybe I'm I think I've heard that. that. I think I've heard that term going around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I noticed and have been noticing and definitely saw in this article I was reading about this TikTok hype house uh, down in Los Angeles. Uh, by the way, I learned what a hype house was. I didn't. <laughs> I think I kind of vaguely knew what this was before, but. The 90s are coming back is what I'm saying. You know what it is? It's the butt cuts. <laughs> butt just, cuts? The butt cuts. A lot of these kids in this New York time, the men, the, the males, had the butt cut. You know what the butt cut is, Kevin? Uh, not exactly. What the it's hell the is John, that? Man? It's the Jonathan Taylor Thomas haircut. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know, you kind of, it's long, maybe goes down to the chin. If it's really long, it's parted straight down the middle and you kind of have a butt on top of your head. <laughs> The sort of bowl cut, butt cut thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. And, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there were lots of great things about the 90s. Um, uh, Mario 64 comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that the butt cut was one of those things. No, no. Uh, I have never had hair for that. So definitely <laughs> not for me. The the Gen Zers are also uh, starting to make fun of millennials. I've noticed. Um, getting back to your nickname, uh, oh. you know, you and I, uh, eighty four, you eighty five, me, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're kind of on the cusp, at the, yeah. the the eldest edge of the millennial, the millennial generation. Um, yeah. And you know, I'm starting to feel old and creaky. And um, yeah, same. I've been seeing I've been seeing these these things on BuzzFeed where like. Gen Z is taking to like usually TikTok or maybe Twitter or something and and uh you know making fun of m- 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 my generation <laughs> my and, generation and I did, yeah, I did that Ross I can't even get that right <laughs> and I like I don't like a lot of times I don't even get it I'm like oh so that I mean they're probably right if what if the way they're making fun of me just goes completely over my head <sighs> so um so here's my prediction these older Gen Zers that I was seeing in this article, while they embrace the butt cut and the Hawaiian t-shirts, I'm thinking the younger ones are going to be all about the low rise jeans and the trucker hats. Yeah. That's going to make a comeback. Unfortunately. (laughs) Remember Ashton Kusher? Yeah. (laughs) Punked. Yeah. Oh man. He had so many trucker hats. Yeah, he did. Uh, I don't, I I never got on board with that. Um, But yeah, there was that like mid 2070s resurgence of a lot of stuff. Uh, and now the 90s has come. It's like everything comes full circle. I don't know what's going to come back from the 2000s and the 2010s. Uh, but, you know, I think Jenko's and Gat gigantic <laughs> jeans are making a comeback. Uh, it's all true. Comeback. It is. Yeah, dude. They're definitely Evan. still around. Like, I don't think Evan. they ever went away and they're coming back. You used to wear Jenko's thing. Yes, I did. No comment. I had, like one pair. I had one pair. I had like five or six, if not more than that. Yeah. I used to listen to corn. What can I say? <laughs> well, look, this week on the podcast, we don't have to talk about that anymore. This week on the podcast, we got uh, Jeremy Fish, a San Francisco artist who you may recognize from his work with Aesop Rock. Um, and the time he spent as an artist in residence at uh, San Francisco City Hall, drawing 100 illustrations of City Hall in 100 days to celebrate the 100th anniversary of City Hall. That's awesome. Well, 
well known around uh, around town. And we have Ike of Ike's Love and Sandwiches joining us to talk about how his uh, growing chain um, that started here in the Castro has uh, been doing during the pandemic. Uh, his secret: start your own app. So, nice. um, yeah, that's who we got on the podcast today. Uh, stick around; we'll be right back with Jeremy and Ike. back with Jeremy Fish, the San Francisco artist known for his collaborations with Aesop Rock and Nike, among many others. Locals may remember his fiberglass sculpture and accompanying mural, Silly Pink Bunnies, which stood at the corner of Haight and Laguna from 2011 to 2013 and eventually became the largest publicly funded bronze statue in the state of California. Others will recall that Jeremy was named San Francisco City Hall Artist in Residence in 2015 when an exhibition and accompanying book, O Glorious City, paid homage to the 7x7 with 100 drawings completed in 100 days to celebrate City Hall's 100th birthday. Recently, his reimagining of San Francisco's flag, which depicts a phoenix rising from the flames, became part of a campaign dubbed Stay Strong San Francisco. Original prints and posters were hung in windows around the city, and the image was also featured on a special edition can and t-shirts from Anchor Brewing, with proceeds going to help local bartenders and the hospitality community. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Right on. Um, so can you elaborate on your uh, Stay Strong SF project? Tell us how it came to be and uh, what it's accomplished. Sure. Uh, it's it's kind of a layered story. It started out in April when we all sort of realized this wasn't going to end anytime soon. And I had watched, I live and work in North Beach, where I've been for the last 15 years, Uh, currently working in a beautiful old bakery that has these kind of floor-to-ceiling windows that look out into the neighborhood. And I literally watched my neighborhood just shut down, get boarded up. And, you know, I'm a middle-aged dude who lives in a basement apartment alone with a cat. All the people that work in my neighborhood are sort of like my roommates and my friends and family. And I watched all these people just basically get sent home with no end in sight and you know, at that point, no idea that they were going to get checks from anywhere. And just, it broke my heart. And so I did a poster about my neighborhood, which I've done many of over the last 15 years, but I did a a new rendition of it with some poppies and the state bear and just all these images that I wove together to try and make an uplifting thing about the businesses in my neighborhood that were currently closed. And I, I sold that and it, it sold out in three minutes and I made $10,000 which instead of using any of the crowdfunding apps or any of those like donate, whatever, I literally went around to the bars that were closed to the people I know that worked in them and handed them wads of cash. And it was satisfying. And I realized that it was a good time to help people. And I had some sort of ability to contribute. So it got my gears turning. And that was about as local as it gets, you know, like I took that $10,000, like I said, and, and broke it into lumps and went around to those bars that were closed and handed it to them. But I realized the problem wasn't just my neighborhood and it's not just my city, the whole world and, you know, bars everywhere were closed. And so uh, I had this larger idea and I drew the flag as kind of a a reminder that our city's flag is about, you know, rebirth and the ability to snap back after a major tragedy. And the Phoenix in our city represents our 
our rebound from the, the 1906 earthquake and fire. And a lot of that imagery has to do with the way the world saw our city as being this resilient, badass place that after this gnarly tragedy, we came back and rebuilt and were again, this powerful, amazing American city. And so the flag needed to be kind of reinvigorated to remind everybody that lives here that like, you know, we're gonna get through this and that we live in a place that's famous for coming back from tragedy. Uh, I realized it needed to be a bigger project than what I had done with the North Beach one because it's a bigger problem. It's not just the bartenders in North Beach or the bartenders in San Francisco. This is all the bartenders across the world and, and more importantly, is like the United States. And so I drew this image and I decided to make posters and I wanted to put there there'd be some way for everybody that looked at one and thought it was cool to be able to donate the same way I donated in my neighborhood. Uh, and the guys at Anchor were clever enough. This guy, Gideon, that I'm working with, who works for Anchor Brewing, uh, helped me figure out that we could put a, a, a scan code into the screen print that people could scan and donate to the United States Bartenders Guild. Um, and it was really successful. At the moment, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, Nick, and I should have. Uh, but I know that between the T-shirt and the can sales and all the people scanning the scan code, uh, Anchor Steam and I have donated an enormous amount of money, uh, not just to bartenders in my neighborhood, our city, but like, you know, nationally across the U.S. Okay. A major focus of the effort um, has been on helping bars. Um, why was that important to you? I live in one of those neighborhoods, man. I don't know if you've ever been to North Beach, but it's like wall-to-wall bars. And I'm not even really a hev- heavy drinker. I just... I enjoy the social aspect of it. I enjoy that it brings people out to my neighborhood. I grew up in a really tourist-driven city in upstate New York, which when I was a kid was in the Guinness Book of World Records for like most bars per capita. I just have always been around bar culture and I have had endless friends and family and you know, an enormous amount of people that that's how they make their living. And I guess as I watched, you know, a giant portion of my city keep getting paid and allowed to work from home and coming and going like this was kind of a, at least in April, coming and going like this was almost a vacation. And, you know, meanwhile, most of the people I run with were out of work indefinitely, having no idea where their income was coming from. And so I think my need to help support bars and bartenders specifically is just, I'm friends with a shitload of them nationally. And I wanted to make sure they all could somehow benefit from the effort. It, it is the nightlife in this city that at one time inspired the great poets, the great writers, the great artists, the great filmmakers. I mean, our city is famous for a lot of amazing cultural contributions to the planet. And I don't know how many of those would have been born if there weren't late nights spent with your comrades exchanging ideas. And I just, it's a melting pot for all things that have San Francisco has generated that are, you know, truly beautiful gifts to the planet. As, as a longtime resident of San Francisco, as an artist, and as someone who has found a community in these these bars, um, which, as you say, you know, they may be the last ones to come back. Um, where's your head at right now? Um, what are your concerns and what are your hopes? Uh, man, Nick, that's a huge one. And I, I just think that I spend most of my time trying to stay positive and just try to focus on the good things that are going to come out of this, the things I can look forward to, because a lot of this is things I can't fix. As many drawings as I draw or fundraisers as I fund, it's, it's you know, these are huge global problems. We already had, you know, 
multiple factors working against the economy in our city, uh, specifically where I live, tourism plays a big role in, in not only North Beach, Fisherman's Wharf, and Chinatown, but our whole city. And historically, when tourists, predominantly European and Canadian tourists, don't really agree with our politics, they don't visit us very often. And I, I took note of that when George W. got reelected back in the day. It was almost overnight. North Beach and the wharf and Chinatown just dropped off completely. I mean, people just stopped visiting here. And so our current president and the reputation that follows that, I mean, tourists just stopped coming here over the last, well, obviously over the last six months, but over the last two years, it just really trickled down to to a drip. And that really does affect the economy on my side of the city and the whole city. I mean, San Francisco is very tourist driven. So I think, you know, take away the tourism, add in the fact that real estate here was absolutely outrageously expensive and preventative for anybody to open a bar or a restaurant or a retail space. I, I, we're just, we're facing some major struggles in terms of, uh, you know, like bars or bars and venues are going to be some of the last things to reopen and, and you feel it. I mean, you can go out any day of the week and see moving trucks all over the city. Uh, my friends and I were playing a game in the beginning of all this. When we'd see a moving truck, we'd ask, you know, we called it coming or going. And we'd ask everybody, you moving in or moving out? And not one person said moving in. You know what I mean? It's just you can feel the amount of people leaving. So I do feel like we, you know, we're going to face some major change. And again, much like the flag and the drawing and the point of our chat, like, we're going to rise through that too and be a better place because of it. And I don't, I don't slight anybody that had to leave for any reason. You know, uh, a lot of people left because they didn't like it here. A lot of people left because they spend all their time complaining. And I do think the one thing we all have to look forward to is that if 25% of the population is leaving, let's just hope that the, the other 75% of us, when bars do reopen, we're standing around with other people who love it here and went through a lot of struggle to stay and stayed because they love it. And that 25%, whether they left because they had to or left because they wanted to, it'll be nice to only have people standing next to you in, in public that really love San Francisco as much as we do and really want to be here. And I think that that is going to help rebuild the city in a positive way. All right. Well, you can find the t-shirt and the Stay Strong SF Pilsner on the Anchor Brewing website. And you can learn uh, more about Jeremy Fish at sillypinkbunnies.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Nick. back with Ike Shahada, founder of Ike's Love and Sandwiches. The San Francisco-born sandwich shop now stretches the length of California and even has some locations in Nevada, Arizona, and Texas. We're talking to Ike today to find out how he and the whole Ike's family is holding up during the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Ike. Hey, Nate. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Before we get into the nitty gritty, um, why don't you just catch everyone up on the Ike's story, where you came from and where you're going? Uh, well, I mean, this is, this could be very long or very short, so I'll do it uh, as short <laughs> as possible. Uh, I started Ike's 2007, and my goal was to be open on Halloween, because in San Francisco and the Castro, they normally have this big block party 
for Halloween. So that was my goal to get open. And I decided to open up a sandwich shop because, uh, well, I love to eat. That's the the number one reason. Though I also love bringing people around uh, a table together to create memories and to cook for people and to just eat and chat and essentially create memories. And in my quest for what kind of restaurant I should do, I chose sandwiches because well, I've been making them since I was five years old. And so I opened up on Halloween in San Francisco. And on the first day, I didn't sell a single sandwich. Uh, it was one of the worst days of my life for a whole bunch of reasons, but got topped off with the selling no sandwiches on my first day. Oh, no. And so I went home and I essentially cried about it for a week, decided to come back and stood outside the store and made sure I was going to sell more than zero sandwiches that day. And then since then, it's been 13 years, just about. Uh, now we've got close to 80 locations in five states. And I mean, I'm, I feel blessed, but I love that I'm able to use my creativity through the medium of food. That's like my art. Okay. Um, so while the restaurant industry uh, overall has been hurting due to the pandemic, um, uh, everyone's familiar with that. I understand business hasn't been so bad for Ike's. Um, is that right? Can you tell us about that? Well, so right in the beginning, the first week, yeah, we were terrified and struggling and, and like, what are we going to do? Then we quickly saw a rebound after the first week of shelter in place in California and specifically San Francisco. And it just started building uh, week over week over week. And we're basically where... We need to be uh, where we are normally for sales. And that includes locations that we have that are even closed because of their campuses or mall locations and things like that. So even though we have had some struggles in that aspect, we're our sales are just as strong as they ever were. That's great news. Um, so I understand you've had some um, success with some socially distanced promotions and um, some tweaking of the Ike's app. Um, can you talk about your successes um, and maybe where you think if you've learned any lessons from them, like where the future of the food service industry is going? So immediately once things uh, started going backwards for business for us, we started thinking, okay, well, we know people still need to eat and we know that they love Ike's. So how can we make it easier for them to just choose to eat Ike's? And we've had our app. I mean, we've had our app since like 2009, uh, so long ago that Ike's was nominated for a TechCrunch award back when we were like the only food place you can order on the app. But what we decided to add to that, which we hadn't before, was delivery. I mean, we personally don't deliver. Ike's doesn't deliver. We've been using third-party apps like probably every other restaurant on the planet does right now. And so we just decided to build that into our app where we, we started doing free delivery on our app, um, making it really easy for you to go, oh, well, I want Ike's. And now they're going to bring it to me through our own app. And then we were able to have a lot of fun through our app. In the beginning of social distancing, we start. Uh, my idea was, okay, uh, it sucks right now out in the world. So how can we make it better? We started doing uh, $5 Fridays, which I would come up with a based on whatever I was binge watching or reading because I'm stuck at home too. Hey, I'm watching this TV series or I watch this movie or I'm reading this book and I would create a sandwich based on that uh, and have that be the theme. And then we had it for $5 on Friday. And you can order the sandwich just for the week and only on our app. 
But on Fridays, every Friday, we'd have a $5 special on those sandwiches, a meat one, a vegetarian one, and a vegan one, and gluten-free. And so we saw that on Fridays, we would surge in sales. Well, obviously, it's $5 for a sandwich in San Francisco. And we offered it everywhere else, too. But also, that helped carry on... Um, people wanting to be on our app and asking, hey, Ike, when's the next one coming up on our social media where I tell a story? Hey, I'm doing this sandwich because I watched this movie and this character and and I felt like I was part of this person, et cetera, et cetera. And then we just would weave that in to our app. So in fact, our app subscriptions and our email list have gone up uh, almost 25 times just in the uh social distancing age of the world because it's like you want these things you gotta sign up on our e-list or you gotta add our app i see i see um so uh sounds like things have been going uh great for you uh in the digital realm um we're approaching a big election year for the country and for san francisco um one of the local ballot measures that we've been monitoring here at uh, sf weekly is measure h which proponents say will make it easier to start a business in San Francisco. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you whether you endorse it or not, but I know you probably have some um, opinions on doing business in the city. It is expensive. I thought uh, I'd just give you the floor to let you say what you think um, might improve things. Well, cool. I, uh, so I vote in San Francisco, so I'll have to dig in and see exactly what, what that uh, H1 does before I decide which way I would vote. Uh, I'd say that the first thing, though, just off the top of my head, when you asked me the question about the prop and you kind of said what it does is, well, why is it not already easy to open up in San Francisco now? Why does somebody have to pass a proposition or put it on a ballot to be able to make it easier? And I think if we start asking ourselves questions like that in San Francisco specifically, asking itself a question like that, like how come it got hard all of a sudden to open up a sandwich place in San Francisco like it was for me? And I got kicked out of my first location because of permitting or moratoriums or, or wherever, conditional use permits and all these other things. As a first-time business um, owner, restaurant owner back then, I didn't know about all this stuff. I passed health. I passed fire. I paid the taxes there and all that stuff. It seemed like San Francisco and not just San Francisco, other cities do it as well. But it seems like there was an added layer specifically so that everybody would have to go in and say, hey, this is what I want to do. Yes or no. It's like being a student in first grade and asking the teacher if you can go use the bathroom. You should be able to use the bathroom when you need to use the bathroom. But for some reason, we got to go, hey, can I do I have permission to go use the bathroom? So overall, that is my line of thinking is is from the standpoint of not what could we do to make it easier? It's why is it hard in the first place? It should be as easy as what do you need to do to open up a restaurant and go and do it. It's that's difficult enough for somebody to decide they want to go for their dreams, whatever the business is, whatever that is, it's difficult enough to go through the hurdle of looking like you're going to be you know, made fun of or, or wanting to look good, all those things that human beings normally go through. And now I got to ask someone permission to on top of that after I've decided that I'm going to go for it. And that all that stuff just doesn't really make sense to me, but it also seems like BS that that is in place. Because who does that actually benefit? It doesn't benefit you. It doesn't benefit me if it's harder for you to follow your dreams and if it's harder for me to follow my dreams. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. I appreciate it. And um, I'm here for you anytime.
Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Maroney. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple or Spotify, follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sfweeklypodcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com. See you next week.